0: Before we start the show, we celebrated our 11th After Dark on Wednesday, the 11th of March. When else could we have had it? We were so thrilled to see everyone who came out, but if you missed the show, fear not. We'll be releasing the episode on the 20th of March, so keep your ear out for it later this week. All right, on with the show. From 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher, and this is FinTech Insider News. This week we bring you RBS prepping for coronavirus impacts, Standard Charter detailing their virtual bank, and Starling joining Team GB. All of this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 409 of FinTech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Sarah Kaczynski. How are you doing today, Sarah?
1: I am well. I'm doing well, thank you, Ross. No signs of coronavirus yet. Um, I was going
0: to say, despite everything.
1: Despite everything. I mean, this is my fourth recording this week, and we did have After Dark yesterday. So to be honest, I'm, I'm just impressed I'm here. I'm just Oh, impressed the show I made must go on, right? Far. Well, always, always, always.
0: And as always, we are joined by some awesome guests uh, making his FinTech Insider News debut. We have Pranav Sood, VP Small Business at uh, GoCardless. Welcome to the show, Pranav. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Excited to be here. Extremely, I can hardly contain my excitement. Oh, okay, we'll see if you're saying that at the end. Um, <laughs> and making welcome return visit, we have Valentina Christensen, Director of Growth and Comms at Oak North. Welcome back, Val.
2: Thanks, thanks for having me back.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you as always. Okay, let's get started. So, our first story today um, it comes from AltFi and concerns RBS offering funding and mortgage breaks to address the coronavirus. So as the illness ravages the global economy, the bank has announced plans to mitigate its impacts. Customers affected by the virus will be eligible to take a three-month holiday from their mortgage or close their fixed savings accounts early. Other banks are expected to roll out similar mortgage policies soon. And in addition, NatWest has opened a £5 billion fund to provide SMEs with emergency loans and uh, and repayment breaks. So uh, there's so much to unpack here, I think, particularly around coronavirus. It's such a rapidly evolving story. But um, this seems like a, a good move, something we can get on board with, and, and I think RBS getting out in front. Um,
1: yeah, well, do, do you, I'll take mortgages and you take SMEs, Val. Well. How does okay, that sound? that sounds good. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I was just going to say it does sound like a good a good thing but you've got to bear in mind that most of these banks already had a uh, three-month holiday for mortgages for anybody affected by Storm Dennis so they're just expanding that policy. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that with the current rates, the interest rates being as they are, it's not really that big of a deal for the mm. banks to be offering these holidays anyway. They're not going to be losing that much. Um, more interesting to me is uh, the, the kind of the other stuff they're doing. So Lloyd's is giving customers emergency access to fixed-term savings accounts, which is mentioned. Um, but it's also deferring loan payments. It's waiving fees on miscredit card payments. It's allowing customers to deposit larger checks online for digital scanning to take out larger amounts of cash. So it's a really holistic policy, um, which we have to applaud because it's doing amazing things for people's – I don't think it's doing amazing things for people's finance. But I think it's doing amazing things for people's presence of mind. There's so much anxiety out there. There is so much kind of worry. But if you can just take the idea of the mortgage repayment away from – from that, it's going to make people um, you know, feel, even if it's a tiny bit better, that's, that's got to help right now. Um, the one thing that is interesting is it says, um, you know, a lot of these things, are said if they, if they are affected by it or if they cannot get to a branch. Now, with Storm Dennis, it was quite clear who had been affected by it. But I don't know if Lloyd's is going to require you to hand in a GP's note before they give you these breaks. That would be interesting.
2: I mean, I think you know it's if you think about what they said yesterday in the budget, right? So we're Thursday today, day. So budget was yesterday. As you say, Russ, it's sort of evolving every single day. So who knows where it'll be by by Monday when when the show comes out? Um, but I mean, I think if you look at uh, you know what they said, so you, you know, you, if you if you think you've got coronavirus, you ha- you're working in retail or leisure, which there's not really an option to sort of work from home. Um, you know, you have to go on to statutory sick pay, which is ninety four pounds twenty five pence a week, right? Which you can't really pay a mortgage on that, um, in in most cases, I imagine. So, um, you know, there's also a, a need to kind of uh, recognise that and then sort of address that on on that side. On the SME side, I mean, look, I think again yesterday the the chancellor laid out a number of really good initiatives to to support uh, small businesses. Everything from sort of business rates, um, freezing, you know, the tax on all of the wonderful alcohol we're drinking. Um, and uh, how does that affect SMEs? Well, so if you think about, like, you know, small businesses like pubs and things like right. that, I mean, I mean, I guess people would be more inclined to go to the pub now, you know. I, I just like don't know if that's the, the behaviour we're trying to encourage at <laughs> the moment, is it? On a, on yeah. a, sorry. I it was, was
3: going to say, there's actually a special relief for small pubs that he announced yesterday as well. That is, yeah, that's true. Um, from one, one of 000. my highlights, of the, one of the many highlights think, of the budget think, I wanted yeah. you know, to call
1: out. Ignore the fact they did a FinTech, they announced a FinTech review. We're all focusing on the alcohol and the pubs. That's <laughs> what's
2: important right now,
1: people. Welcome to FinTech. And the abolishment of
2: the tampon tax, finally. That was great as well. Well, not not necessarily affecting SMEs, but um, but then also obviously the the, the sort of um, emergency coronavirus uh, loan scheme. Um, so, kind of loans up to about one point twenty five million to cover working capital. Uh, another two hundred million um, to the British Business Bank to support scale ups. I think the kind of key thing here is just making sure that these these processes come into effect you know, well, yesterday, (laughs) Uh, because if if it's sort of weeks and weeks until they they actually have a proper process aligned for how banks can actually benefit from these things and how they can then start implementing them to do loans, um, then by that point, you know, coronavirus could have kind of come and gone and and the damage has been done. So really, really important that these things kind of come into effect as quickly
3: as possible. So I was going to say, I think in ordinary circumstances, SMBs live on the edge. Um, I think every year, roughly 50,000 go Bust just mm-hmm. because of late payments. Um, I think I saw a number that said around fifty percent of small businesses are cash flow positive every month in a normal year, and having a shock like this impacts them in so many ways. You know, the revenue hit, the productivity hit, the costs. Val was talking about as well. You know, sick leave, parental leave, all these things that you don't factor in. And going back to the actual story, I think you know it's fantastic to see the banks taking some action. But I think Val's point is really the salient one, which is it needs to happen fast mm-hmm. because. Uh, rate cuts and, and all the the stuff that you do at the economy-wide level, it takes time to filter down. And I think that's not really what small businesses have got right
0: now. And so, Well, I think my worry on that is that, um, you know, what we've seen in terms of um, the rate cut and, and, and the types of measures that we've just described, I don't necessarily think that they're going to have the the impact in terms Mm. of shaping behavior in the short term because people are panicked. It goes back to Sarah's original point around anxiety and people are going to act into that. I think, you know, what we're probably doing now is sort of laying the, the, the groundwork, at least with the base rate cut, um, building a bit of resilience into the economy so that once the virus has peaked, it can bounce back that a little bit quicker.
1: I just, I mean, to be honest with you, I just, I just don't think it's enough. I mean, it's bad enough you're an SMB, you know, I mean, unless you're making toilet roll, in which case I suspect you're fine. <laughs> or hand sanitizer. Uh, or hand sanitizer. But if, particularly if you are in, you know, hospitality or the travel industries. Imagine you're running a small cafe or a restaurant. We end up with a situation like, you know, God forbid, like Italy, and everything has to close. I'm, I'm just not sure it'll be enough. Um, and, and the bigger point I think is, um, yes, my concern is for people and for small businesses. But with the markets the way they are, where are the banks finding this money? How are they going to be able to, you know, what impact is it going to have on the banks in the long term in the fact that, you know, Lloyd's has stumped up, what is it, two billion? NatWest has got five billion. Yes, you know, Some of that money is coming from the government. But the bank's capital reserves have been rinsed over the last week. So I, I wonder... It's not. It's not the concern for right now. The concern for right now is individual people. But with the the looming fears of like crashes and Black Mondays in two thousand and eight in the back of my head, I wonder how um, sustainable it is for the banks and how resilient they can be.
2: Right, I think that's that's. A really good point. But, you know, the reality is with the markets going in the direction they are, I mean, FTSE 100 fell another 10% uh, when I just looked to my phone. So, um, you know, that means that people then are much more likely to save the money and put it in with a bank rather than investing it where there's obviously potential to get more returns than you'd be getting if you left it in a bank, which might be paying, you know, mm-hmm. pretty low interest rates. Um, but that's... That record be the place. low interest rates. Yeah, record low interest rates, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, that's why you should put money with Oak North because, you know, really good <laughs> competitive <laughs> rates. Uh, but, you know, then I think that's that's where people will go. They'll And that's that will be the way that um, the banks will be able to get this this money. Yeah, see, I don't think that's enough. I think
1: that because so much of the bank's capital is not, you know, is, is not deposits. I mean, a, a large proportion of it is, but the, the rest of it is easy invested. You know, that, that is where it is. Um, and, you know, if you look at the other things, they've got like outstanding loans... Yeah, of course, they're giving people a break, and of course, they should be. But at what point are they going to have to call those back in, and what impact is that going to have? Uh, You know, I... I, I think it's a broader point, actually, like about this the coronavirus effect on you know, as the opening line was Ross, ravaging the global economy. No,
0: and and, and markets have been rattled, right? Um, mm. And again, look, it goes back again, I think, to the the, the core point, Sarah, that you made in um, er, earlier on about anxiety. I think it's that, that that anxiety is there. Markets do not like uncertainty. There's a lot of questions around coronavirus that we just don't know the answers to, and I think you know we're seeing the impacts in terms of. Um, the the impact on the market and 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 to be honest, to me, just looking at this, it is all of the hallmarks of a very severe um economic shock.
1: Can I just say that that anxiety is why we're also concerned about the pubs because mm-hmm. that's that's the only way out of this, guys, is just to head to the pub.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's
1: exactly my point. And so congregate. <laughs> that's why they were
2: like great in large groups the <laughs> at the <Yeah>. pub.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm going to move us on. um Our next story comes from FinTech Futures and concerns Standard Chartered naming their new Hong Kong virtual bank. So the multinational bank has partnered with two national telcos and a travel agency to launch Mox. The new challenger will offer numberless bank cards that store customer information in app, which is very on trend. Um, Mox is currently in beta testing and is expected to launch later this year. And Standard Chartered were one of the first banks to get a virtual banking license from the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, HKMA. Uh, and since then, five other banks have been approved. So I think that for me is the headline of this one. It's the, um, the power and the, the potential impact of a sort of open and proactive regulator.
1: Yeah, I mean, they've got, I think they've got eight licenses that have been uh, up for grabs in the first wave. Um, it's really interesting to see watch the um, HKMA because uh, like many regulators around the world that have their uh, systems based on the UK regulation. so I'd hate to use the word, colony. But if you look at the regulators around the world that do have a very similar operating process and system to the UK, it is Hong Kong, it is Singapore, it is Australia. Um, so they tend to have a, a, a similar way of working. And uh, HKMA has done that, you know, fantastic thing of looking what everybody else is doing Gone, that's worked, that's worked. Mm, no, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 and brought that, you know, and, and brought that to reality. I think, you know, the fact that they've they've gone quite large, and you know, they've gone with eight to start with, because we look at Australia, they've got um, a new licensing regime, but they've only got, you know, three or four that have actually managed to go through the process in the last two years. Uh really interesting as well to see the way that they're they're testing this as well. So the banks go into a sandbox, um, you know, to test things out before they go live. So the other bank that's currently in the sandbox is China's Z- bank, Za Bank, Z A Bank, Zha Bank. <laughs> whatever you fancy, <laughs> it's,
0: it's one of the three. You <laughs> it's
1: one of the three. Um, so I, I, I like that process as well. I think you know HKMA is, as has learned from from other markets. Uh, its use of sandbox has worked elsewhere. Brilliant. Um, interesting point about whatever that bank is, a uh, day bank, and they had two thousand people express interest before it even went into the sandbox. So I think these banks are, are, are going to do well in that market.
2: Well, also what's interesting is seven of the eight pending licenses that you mentioned are backed by Alibaba, Tencent, <laughs> Xiaomi, and Bank of China. So. Yep. Uh, you know, again, really, really interesting. It just shows you. I mean, there's uh, Alibaba's kind of been in in and Tencent as well have been in fintech for for a while, whether it's through, um, you know, uh, Ali Pay, um, WeChat, etc. So, I mean, it's uh, it's great to see that that you know they're obviously using their 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 scale to now try and take advantage of this of this change with the with the new digital banking licenses. Obviously, you've had a couple of players like Revolut and Tandem express interest in going to Hong Kong. Um, I mean, Tandem said in November last year that it would roll out an early adopter programme before the end of last year. I don't know if that happened. I don't believe so because I think Tandem has other
1: things going on at the moment if you look at its recent fundraising round and its purchase mm. of a lender. Um, but I just to your point there Val, I completely agree. Um, one of the really interesting things about Hong Kong and the Hong Kong virtual bank market as well is exactly as you say how many of them are JVs. So mm. that's not mm. something we've already seen somewhere else. Um, and that says two things to me. One um, that the incumbents are aware and they need to you know, up their game. They're not just going to let these new guys come in and, and, and take it away from them. Um, and two that this kind of like ecosystem is becoming bigger and bigger and more and more sprawling and more and more players are getting involved. You know, why wouldn't telcos be involved in neobanks? It does kind of make sense when you look at some of the technologies involved. So I think that's kind of almost the unique thing about Hong Kong. And I'm really intrigued to see how it plays out.
0: I think your point that I really wanted to pick up on was um, around this with that cultural alignment between particularly the u k and Hong <laughs> Kong and how that's played out I think in a regulatory sense we know that the HKMA we, we've spoken to them we've got a good relationship with guys there um, that they've had our eyes on particularly the FCA and, and sort of see them as the the gold standard um, what I think is 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 also interesting is value mentioned like Revolut, um, this idea of startups from the UK in particular being able to go into HKMA into Hong Kong, test the market um, with a view to then sort of maybe moving into like mainland China and actually sort of potentially acquiring a much larger customer base.
2: Well, it's one of the FinTech bridges with Hong Kong.
1: It is, yeah. yeah. So, um, I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but Hong Kong, uh, Australia is definitely another one. Singapore. Singapore, South Korea, I think. uh, South Korea, that's an interesting one. Um, And there is one, with. it's not Canada, I think it's Ontario. Okay. Um, it's like one of the Canadian districts. But again, that speaks to your point about kind of the the old relationships, or old alliances, if you like.
2: The thing with Revolut, so I looked because I was, I you know, when I, when we were sort of reading about the story, obviously one of their big backers is DST Global who are based in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. On the website it says they're recruiting for over 420 positions at the moment, but none are in Hong Kong. So I don't know if that's... They haven't, you know, then maybe they're sort of deciding what kind of people they want to hire there. Maybe they're waiting until, you know, they've kind of, I guess, got got a license or gotten more sort of um, perhaps partnered with someone who has a license.
1: I mean they are operating in Australia, Revolut, mm-hmm. So and i part of, you know, the latest money they've raised is to go towards that. So I wonder if they've actually looked at it and thought that they why have a base in both Hong Kong and Australia? Because from Australia maybe you can do work across Asia as well. I don't know that, but, but I just think that might be another option for their strategy.
0: All right. Well, for more on this, we turn to mock CEO, Denise Govin, who had this to say.
4: Hi, FinTech Insider. Hi everyone. I'm very excited to share that we have just unveiled our brand Mox. Early days, but I can tell you that there's a big excitement already, and Mox.com visited more than 100,000 times without any paid media, and LinkedIn followers are going up very quickly. Mox is a virtual challenger bank in Hong Kong, powered by Standard Chartered, in partnership with PCCW, Hong Kong Telecom, and Trip.com. We are the combined power of a leading international bank. The city is Telecom and the Asia's largest online travel agency. We will also redefine the digital banking experience in Hong Kong by providing a suite of financial and lifestyle services instead of traditional products to unlock more possibilities for our customers. Our name, MOX, reflects endless opportunities we can create. Mobile experience, money experience, exponential growth, exploration. We call ourselves and our customers' generation MOX. Jammox is not about age or digital savviness. It's a mindset. It's an attitude for more possibilities. We believe banking should be simple, intuitive, and of course, delightful to gain customers' trust and win their hearts. We are also the first bank in Asia to launch all-in-one numberless bank card. It's a card carrying all functions of an ATM, debit, credit, without any printed card numbers, expiry date, or CVV. We launched this card because we know security and privacy is core to our customers, and I believe everyone will like our card design. Mox app will be the remote controller of your card and will be a great convergence between a physical product and digital service. To be a su- successful virtual bank, I truly believe one of the most important elements is to gain hard share in Hong Kong instead of market share. We will launch the bank in upcoming months. Stay tuned. Thank you.
0: Okay. I think we can all agree on, um, I think Denny's passion and enthusiasm there was really quite charming. Um, okay. I'm going to move us on to our next story, um, which I, I, I'm i kind of loving right now, sat next to Valentina Christensen. Um, the story itself comes from the Financial Times and concerns Oak North Bank reporting a spike in pre-tax profits. So the UK Neobank made $65.9 million Pounds and 95% increase from its 2018 totals, the bank, which specialises in lending to mid-sized businesses, reached two billion in loans this year, more than doubling its previous year's totals. It also raised revenues by 74% to 104 million pounds last year, and unlike many neobanks, Oak North has been consistently profitable, even amid uncertainty in the UK market. So, um, Val, do you mind if I throw to you, care to tell us a little bit about this story?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, you've kind of run run through the numbers there. I mean, um, you know, really great to see, again, um, you know, strong double-digit growth despite, you know, so much uncertainty last year. If you think about what Oak North does, obviously raising deposits and then using those deposits to, to fund lending to SMEs. Um, you know, very much there was a view that because of Brexit, because of the general election, that you'd see demand for, for loans uh, dry up, um, demand for business loans dry up. Um, and, uh, you know, what's great is that we continued to see, uh, you know, high demand. We continued to, to support those businesses, um, you know, and obviously, you know, we've got now, unfortunately, more uncertainty with coronavirus. Um, But, you know, we've still got over 2 billion of qualified deals in the pipeline. So the hope is that you will still see, uh, you know, strong businesses. I think what this demonstrates is that... Even in times of economic uncertainty, you know some will see a threat, but there'll be an opportunity for others, right? Um, yeah. Whether it's, you know, you're a recruitment firm and one of your competitors goes out of business and then that's an opportunity for you to gain those clients or gain their best talent. Uh, you know, it might be that there's a, a property company that can then buy up uh, sites at a discount. Um, so, there's, you know, there will always be opportunity in times of turmoil and, and the strongest businesses will be able to thrive, not just survive.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think what what came out quite nicely in, in in terms of what you've just said as well is is it's not just uh, a boon for Oak North, but it really it's a boon for the British economy, right? Um, and y- y- you know, I think that that sort of missing middle, um, mm. the, those small businesses that I think are the backbone of the British economy, and I, you know, it, it have been so underserved. For well, it's, so long. it's
2: those it's those middle businesses, right? I think you always hear small businesses are the backbone of the economy, but actually, if you think about the corner shop where you buy your your newspaper. You know they're probably not really, um, you know, contributing that much in terms of GDP growth. Um, you know, in terms of jobs creation, in terms of productivity, it's you know the Leons, mm-hmm. which might have you know sixty sites now across the UK, hiring thousands of people, um, you know, paying huge amounts in in taxes. So that is, um, you know, those are the ones. It's those sort of the missing middle who are the the real drivers of 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 productivity of growth. You know, they're, they're the ones, the sort of scale-up businesses, I'd say.
0: And those those Oak North loans have enabled those businesses to create almost 12,000 new affordable and social homes, 17,000 new jobs. Yeah. I mean, you know, genuine, demonstrable, Multiplier meaningful effect. benefit in the British economy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, the, the, the point here is that having a very focused business model, right? So we, we're not trying to be all things to all people. Hmm. Um, You know, we're just focusing on doing one thing really, really well and then going very deep on that. Um, Whereas if you look at some of the other fintechs, obviously they've taken a strategy which is, you know, to try and do a lot of different things um, to gain, you know, to gain market share, to attract customers, because maybe that customer doesn't necessarily want to have them as their current account, but they want to use them for stock trading or they want to use them for. Buying gold or whatever the, the latest thing is now, buying crypto. Um, so I think you know by being really, really focused, and then obviously the efficiency that the platform helped us to to get. So you know if you look at other metrics, you know cost income ratios, you know run rate is twenty six percent, RORE, return on required equity is is twenty two percent. You know you compare that to the figures from other banks, and and uh, you know that's dramatically different
0: yeah absolutely i i I know Rishi as well sort of believes in not spending money that you 're not going to get back. i know i 've heard him say that a couple of times um, and 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 I suppose the contrast being other fintechs that are prioritizing scale. I think that's something that is sort of really ingrained in the Oak North culture. Yeah, I
2: mean, I think the guess the thing is because the the FT headline said, you know, profits have have grown, you know, but growth has slowed. I mean, the reality is that when you're you can't have triple digit growth forever, right? Because the the the, the, the sum gets larger, um, and I think we'll see, you know, we'll continue to see hopefully double digit growth on the bank and and then triple digit growth for the for the platform.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, interesting from from my perspective, I I always use Oak North as kind of the the example for the, I call them the neobank will never be profitable brigade. And I'm like, well, there are are other examples outside Mm -hmm. of Oak North, but Oak North is, you know, the best one, the easiest one to hold up. And I think it, it exactly, the model you have speaks to the fact of doing one thing. Well, I would say doing one thing and doing it really, really well. But I think that the one thing that Oak North has done really, really well is that platform, is that model is getting the underlying kind of business basics right for working out who you lend to, how much you lend to, etc, etc. And then, of course, I I haven't read through the numbers in detail, so please forgive me, but I'm fairly sure that the platform part of the business will be contributing significantly to to that profitability because other institutions are using it and why wouldn't they if it's proven so successful for Oak North? Um, I think that just goes to show that actually the one thing you do well doesn't have to necessarily be on the customer end. It doesn't necessarily have to be that kind of new interface or shiny new app or whatever else it is. It can actually just be looking at part of a, of a financial organization of a bank that just hasn't changed for hundreds of years or not hundreds of years but probably in the case of a platform like that and the models it's using 50, 60, 70, 80 years and thinking well, if we do that bit right everything else around it will probably come right as well. Um, so yeah I just like the, I like the diversity of the model.
0: Yeah I completely agree and I think it's another example of where you guys have been quite strategic obviously you've looked at the platform as a way to expand internationally where, But it also allows you guys to really hone in on the UK and what you do particularly yeah. well.
2: I mean, another thing, I guess, I mean, it was picked up less, um, which I, I guess is to be expected, but also the fact that we became one of the first banks globally to achieve net carbon zero, which is something else that we're you know super super proud of i mean for scope 1 and 2 emissions so i mean i won't go into the sort of boring <laughs> detail of scope 1 and 2 what scope 1 2 and 3 emissions but um again you know it's it's sort of looking at our carbon footprint every flight that our employees take um you know the cost for our, our it servers you know aws you know those those big yeah. uh, you know those the, the big servers you'll see out in the desert so um you know i think we're we're just really mindful of of you know being sustainable in terms of economic sustainability and having a business that makes sense but also being sustainable in terms of you know doing what's right for you know the businesses that for the environment that we're, we're obviously in and for the the <coughs> communities that we're obviously um, helping to grow.
1: Can I ask a quick question about that, actually? Mm. I just wondered how much of that is driven by customer demand and how much of that is driven by, or, or customer, you know, on both sides of customers, uh, or how much of it is just driven
2: by the ethos of the company itself? So I think, I mean, if you look at a business like Leon, obviously a really great example of a business that's very socially minded, um, you know, they're very much at the sort of forefront of the vegan movement, um, you know, no plastic packaging. So it is something that, you know, we're very conscious of, You know the businesses that we lend to. We don't lend to businesses that are doing, you know, uh, oil and gas or leather tanning or gambling, anything like that. So that's that's one piece of it. But then, but you do do alcohol, right? (laughs) Go (laughs) back to our pub point. (laughs) Bars, sure, bars, bars and restaurants, places that serve alcohol. Um, But you know, I mean, if you think about uh, like a Leon, you know, that's that's a business that's very socially minded. So I think if we were being seen to be, uh, you know, creating a huge detriment to the environment, then that would probably make businesses like Leon question whether we're really the right funding partner for them. Um, But it is also because, as I say, I mean, it's, we're all very mindful of the the uh, damage that's been done to the environment. You know, if we don't, We you know, we all have, well, a lot of people obviously at Oak North have children or want children, um, or just, you know, don't want, you know, want to ensure that the planet is still here in, in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, etc. So, yeah, just making sure that we're, we're doing, you know, we're being sustainable and being a good business, yeah. um, both economically, but also um, environmentally.
0: And this is the thing, isn't it? Because you you're almost sort of proving the model, right? You're showing that you can be socially aware and that um, you can be sustainable. But at the same time, you can be ranked in the top 1% of, of banks globally in terms of performance, you know, named by the FT as Europe's fastest growing company. So... um you c- yeah, you, c- you guys are booking some serious trends. I Sorry, love it. I was
1: just going to say, going back to the, um, the 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 wider point as well. I know that Oak North does um, a certain amount of work with investing money back into to women entrepreneur, uh, female entrepreneurs, and and helping women up um, through the chain. And going back to a podcast that I recorded earlier this week for International Women's Day. Um, you can make money doing the right things, and I think yeah. we need more companies coming out and saying, look, we are profitable, it does make good business sense, it really works, um, to h- being held up as that example, because a lot of companies will take the easy way out and say, oh, can't make any money doing that, the business will fold, you know, whether that's green mm. credentials, whether that's supporting female entrepreneurs, whatever it is. So, um, I think, you know, the, the more we see, the better, and the more examples are out there, the yeah. better.
0: No, I think and at a time when um, we're being bombarded with negative news, I think it's nice to go to break on a positive story. We will be back very shortly. This podcast is brought to you by Stake, the digital brokerage app bringing you unrivaled access to the U.S. market. Invest in over 3,500 U.S. stocks and ETFs, including game-changing companies like Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Trading is instant, direct, and commission-free, and with a fully digitized sign-up, you'll be in the market in minutes. So visit hellostake.com or search Stake Trade to seize the U.S. market's 31 trillion dollars worth of opportunity today here at 11fs we deliver work all over the globe from north america and throughout europe to the middle east south africa and across apac we've helped clients deliver truly digital propositions with that in mind we've added an exciting new page to our website if you head over to 11fs.com you'll see a new page in our top nav called work we've got some brand new case studies for you to look at they feature some of the companies and propositions that 11FS have worked for. There's interesting stuff up there with RBS, Virgin Money, Grab, and Atom Bank. Head over to the 11FS website and have a look. And if you think we can help you build truly digital propositions, then drop us an email via hello at 11FS.com. Now, on to the international news. Our next story comes from Finextra and concerns Zinja barring new customers after interest rates drop. The Australian neobank is no longer letting customers sign up for its 2.25% savings account. This comes after the RBA announced a 0.25% rate cut and has left Zinger weighing up the cost of servicing an account that has already attracted what's really quite a staggering $350 million Australian in deposit inflows since its launch in January. So while Zinja can hold deposits, deposit, it hasn't launched its credit or loan offerings yet. And the account is thought to cost the bank seven and a half million Australian dollars per year just to keep afloat. So I've got a couple of quotes here from um, Zinja CEO Eric Wilson that I just wanted to throw out there. So I think he was trying hard here to put a positive spin on things. He said, as always, Zinja wants to break the traditional banking model. When faced with higher than expected deposit flows and an RBA rate cut, most banks would just drop deposit interest rates hurting existing customers while chasing new ones and that's not what Zinja is about. He said managing these costs as a new bank in a way that cares about existing customers means pushing the pause button on opening new accounts for a while. So I guess I'm most interested in sort of getting people's thoughts on that little bit of spin in the first instance.
1: So we we know how I feel about the Australians, you know, they I'm I'm very very fond. Um I think I I actually think that is it is spin, but I also actually think it's the right decision um, because uh, the reason that, you know, Zinja has, has this rate out there, um, and I should point out as well that most of the neobanks in Australia have similar rates. So 86,400 and um, up both have the same 2.25% rate. That's the rate when you add up the base rates. The base rates are about 04 0.5% and then you have like a bonus rate. Which you get depending on whether you adhere to certain rules. So eighty six thousand four hundred, you have to deposit a thousand dollars a month. Um, up, you have to make five deposits per month into the linked payment accounts. So you can't just have a savings account; you've got to be using the linked uh, current account if you like. Um, so they, they, basically, it's, it's a market standard out there for, for the near banks. Um, Vault is another bank that's got two point one five percent, but you know it, it's up there. It's good if you think about the rates that we're seeing over here. Um, and those aren't those aren't fixed term rates. Those are easy access rates. So Zinger has done this, you know, as the other banks have done, to gather customers, to get customers through the door, to get customers using its product. Um, and, you know, obviously off the back of that, to start getting their feedback to see, you know, what they should be doing next. The last thing it wants to do is let go of all those customers and all those deposits that it's successfully accumulated by slashing the rate. Because those other banks are offering the same rate and haven't cut theirs yet, and I will say yet. Um, The minute it cuts that rate, all that's going to happen is those people are going to go to 86,400 or go to up, and it loses that advantage it's gained. So whilst I do appreciate that it could be viewed as spin. I actually think it's a very sensible decision. And I think you've also, to go back to your point, um, uh, Ross, about just how much they've accumulated, like $350 in dollars. They are very, very close, as far as I understand it, to launching their mortgage product. So they don't want to be giving up that deposit just as they're on the cusp of launching a lending product, which they can price very attractively because of the aforementioned rate cut. So I think there's two things here that are interesting to me. One is that the Australian market is um, a little bit unusual in this sense, that all the banks have gone for such high interest rates. So over here, the neobanks used free travel as kind of the, the catch to get you in. The Australians have gone for high interest rates as a catch to get you in. Um, so that's unusual. And then also, you know, kind of the way that the way that they've done it, I think, is, is to be applauded,
2: actually. I mean, I, I guess I... I don't really get the strategy, right? I mean, I understand that, okay, fine, they're trying to raise these deposits because they're looking to lend out in the future. Um, but it's very expensive, right? I mean, they said the the $350 million that they've they've raised is going to cost them $7.5 million per year, um, you know, in, in annual interest costs. Um, so they have to kind of start deploying that capital pretty quickly. Uh, I think when you're a bank like Marcus or a player like Marcus, you've got incredibly deep pockets because you're obviously coming from Goldman Sachs, then it looks super strategic offering a, a rate that's sort of miles ahead of others in the market to attract those those customers in because you can afford to do it for the next year and then rates will drop. I kind of feel like if you're doing it now, you know, as soon as you come into market, it just looks a bit amateurish, you know, like you're the, the new guys are supposed to be coming in, build, building a professional new banking sector. And you're actually then, the only way you seem to be able to differentiate is by being either the cheapest or by offering, you know, the
3: the, the best rate. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point. It, it is a, a bit weird that the only thing that you can differentiate on is is exactly that, the rate. It, it's, it's quite interesting to me because, yes, they've got $350 million in deposits after two or three months, which is fantastic. But that's still a drop in the ocean relative to what the big four banks in Australia have got already, right? And you'd expect and hope that by providing something a little bit better, either from a digital experience or a user journey perspective, that you could Differentiate enough to win some more of that, you know, five hundred billion dollars worth of, you know, uh,
1: yeah. So I need to counter that and say that the Australian big four banks have some of the best apps in the world from incumbent banks. So in terms of differentiating from user experience, that is incredibly difficult over there um, because everything that Monzo did over here, the big four Australian banks have already done and done it better. But also, I do understand what you're saying. You know, it kind of it doesn't it doesn't speak much to them. But the other thing you have to uh, think about the Australian market is that mortgages are the biggest thing in mm-hmm. Australia. They are more obsessed with property, perhaps, than the Brits. And that's saying something. So they kind of, I think their strategy is that they know that mortgages are the big goal. They know that consumers are really, really unhappy with the big four banks. They know that the big four banks are being punished at the moment on the mortgage side because of the mess ups they've made. So that's what they're trying to get to. Um Sorry, I was just going to say, if you look at Judo Bank, which has a model actually quite similar to Oak North's, um they've got, you know, uh, fixed-term accounts for for 1.5% uh, for five years, which isn't actually as good as these easy-access accounts, which suggests that it is, it is that mortgage side that they're trying to pull the deposits in for.
3: Yeah. No, I was going. I think you basically said what I was going to say, yeah, which sorry. is... Um, no, no, it's fine. I get a bit defensive
1: um, about the Australians. <laughs> no,
3: but uh, the other thing about Australia is that if you are going to pick a time to innovate in financial services now is that time. All of the factors that you need, you know, the banks getting knocked up and down the high street by the Royal Commission, all the other stuff that's going on. And so I agree with you that yes, CBA and others have got pretty good digital apps. But they're also in the middle of an absolute bun fight right now. Yeah. And so I think I just go back to Val's point, which I, I kind of agree you should be able to differentiate on more than just the and, rates that you're paying. All
0: right, but it's easy to be cynical though, isn't it? I mean, look, I totally take your point. Future parity isn't parity. And when you've got someone saying, we're trying to change the traditional banking model, but actually they're relying on the same old acquisition hooks that all of the big banks rely on, it's easy to be cynical. Um, but at the same time, I think it, you want to believe in that sort, of, um, that sort of ambition and that they are actually trying to do something that, that's different.
2: I mean, I guess the other thing that kind of jumped out at me from the story was that they said that they've recently launched their Series D funding round aimed at large investors. So my question is, what were they doing with Series A, B and C? I mean, if they haven't, if they've, all they've done so far is raise deposits, they haven't started doing any lending. What on earth do they need to do, you know, four rounds for? So
1: as far as I understand it, and this is um, kind of based on conversations I've had with people and sort of, you know, things that I've seen, um, actually it's getting licensed. Um, And the licensing process in Australia, whilst they came out and were very optimistic that they had learned a lot from the UK and were going to be able to do things similarly, the bit between getting your restricted license and your full license has taken a hell of a lot longer and been a hell of a lot more resource intensive than any of those banks thought it would be. Um, That are suggestions that that's deliberate by the regulator. They do not want too many new banks in the market too quickly. You have to remember how many people or rather how few people there are in Australia. They've yeah. got around 20 million. Um, so I I actually think that's where a huge amount of the money has gone is is has been sucked up and just getting to the point where they're actually allowed to even take those deposits. Now they've gotten there, they're going to take Everything they
0: can, but and I think that's it, right? It's like they they have done that. They've done that very well. But actually, it's like where they go from here. I think that's really gonna um, that's mm. really gonna define success. Absolutely. Okay. Sorry, I'm going to move us on to our next story, which uh, comes from AltFi um, and concerns Revolut uh, allegedly applying for a UK banking license. So, the challenger wants to get the license before the end of the year. Obviously, it currently operates in the UK and a European banking license. In addition to solving passporting problems, the license would allow. Revolut to hold its own deposit and bring its lending in house. Uh, This will be the company's first formal UK banking application. and last month, Revolut announced that it would move its European payment operations to Lithuania and to Ireland when the uh, when the UK leaves the EU. So I guess if I were to put a question out there, it would be how much of this is about working around sort of future issues with passporting, and then how much of it is about being able to sort of expand out that existing suite of, of, of banking products and services.
1: So what people listening to the podcast can't tell is that I pulled a, a big face at Ross there. No. Um, it doesn't operate in the UK on a European banking license, operates in the UK. On an e-money license, yes. it has a it has a banking license from um, Lithuania, but it does not operate on that. And in fact, it doesn't have any full-stack banking services live. So. Um, uh, you know, that that is a quite an important difference, particularly when you look at what's happened in 26. Um, the other thing I think is interesting, uh, just in here, is that the first formal UK banking application, sure. there have been rumors abounding for a very long time The so, yeah. has been trying to do this for.
4: I mean, literally,
2: so I was just, I mean, having a, a Google. So in January last year, Nikolai um, Stransky, the CEO, said or I should say co-founder, because there's lots of CEOs there now. But, um, you know, he unveiled his plan to build a global licensing team that will be responsible for securing banking, trading, and credit licenses, starting with the UK and the US. And that was in January of 2019. So we're now 15 months later. He explained, you know, Brexit is obviously a little bit of an inconvenience for us, but we've never been a reactive company. That's why we've now secured an EMI, electric money institution license in both the UK and Europe. And now that we have a European banking license in place, our next step is to secure a B- UK banking license. So I'm not really sure, like, why this is news. I mean, okay, yeah. fine, find they've done a formal application, they put out a press release on it. Maybe people just wanted something different to write about besides coronavirus. Yeah, just, well.
1: So I was just going to say, it, it, why not? work on getting stuff up and running off the back of that Lithuanian license that they've got? I know, And I know it has been mired in issues. There's been, actually, I believe that the, the country's government has gotten involved about the handing out of that license and whether it was... It is Lithuania, isn't it? Wasn't it is not it yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I had a mental block there. Um, why haven't they started taking deposits in the EU? Why haven't they got those banking products live there before they look at the UK market? Because as far as I understand it, Revolut's customers are actually pretty evenly spread It's not like, for example, I don't know... Monzo was starting when most of their customers are in the UK for obvious reasons but like I as far as I understand it like Revolute is, is pretty broad spread so why aren't they doing that first?
2: Well I think also this is the challenge right I mean it's not just like the license is one thing I mean it's a, it's a big thing but then once you get the license you know sorry, before you even get the license you have to get the exco, you know the, the, the CEO the audit if you go onto their, their careers page I mean they're currently recruiting for like three or four different CEO, three CEOs one in, in the UK one in Japan, one in Canada, two chief compliance officers, two yeah. chief risk officers, one chief product officer, yeah. four hundred and twenty-three positions. They said they're going to hire another thirty, five hundred people. You know, so effectively trying to become a a global bank. And again, I mean that's replicating a model that, that well, you know that has and, existed
0: for a long time. And again, to me, you know, it, it was flying in the face of, of sort of what they've said actually looks or at least comes across as actually being quite reactive because mm. I think they're trying to add more seasoned traditional bankers to their board and positions of influence, you know, to, to sort of, I Counter. guess, preempt and yeah, exactly. Um,
1: I would just on that note, and it's not really relevant to applying for a license, although it might be actually, um, I'd like to see a bit more diversity in their hires. Any more, you know, men who've served at banks, mm. you know, that's not really if what they are doing is trying to bolster, you know, that that senior suite mm. so that they look a bit more, um, I don't know. Uh, seasoned or respectable
3: uh, uh, professional. Only
0: one of them worked at Goldman Sachs. That's oh, quite, only one. Oh,
1: all right diverse. then. Oh, okay.
0: But 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 what we've seen, and you know, I think a lot of the um, the the more established fintechs now that have had to engage with the regulator and that have um, since gone on to successfully acquire banking licenses, is you need people in your ranks, traditional bankers who are used to engaging with the regulator, who are used to regulators speak. So I think in that sense. I, I I I get it. I, my only question or my only pushback is: Are they a little bit late to the party here? Who knows? TBD. Okay. Um, I am going to move us on to our next story, which comes from BBC News uh, and concerns Yes Bank in India, with their operations being frozen and uh, alarmingly, perhaps, the co-founder being arrested for alleged money laundering. So, um, earlier this month, the Reserve Bank of India took control of the country's fifth largest private bank after it failed to secure a much-needed capital injection. The central bank imposed a temporary $630 limit on withdrawals, leading to long queues for cash, so no need to be alarmed whatsoever. This had a knock-on effect on local fintechs, which Yes Bank supported for QR code payments. Uh, A few days later, then the Yes Bank co-founder, Rana Kapoor, was arrested over money laundering allegations. He was also accused of taking money to fund a housing finance company that later went bankrupt. Authorities claim that Kapoor's crimes involved $581 million in funds, so small change. And currently, (laughs) Yes Bank is working on a revival plan with the State Bank of India. I'm just going to throw this one out there. This is nuts.
2: It is. Like, I, I just, I honestly don't know what to say. I mean, it's... It's a problem with how they've been regulated. It's a problem with the corporate governance. It's a problem with the CEO. I mean, it's just like it's a total disaster. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm intrigued to see what kind of recovery plan uh, they'll come up with. But it's it's just shocking.
3: To be clear, this isn't a surprise, by the way. So the Yes Bank has yeah, been nobody in trouble.
2: Used,
1: nobody's surprised by this. you <laughs> have been
2: following Yes Bank.
3: It's, I mean, it's been in trouble almost since it was founded. So the the whole thing is like an episode of Game of Thrones. The boardroom politics that have been involved almost since the beginning of, of this uh, of this organization. I wish I'd been following it sooner. <laughs> it's been a great story, honestly. Um, and even, even last year, there was a huge decrease in its share price, I think in Q1, when they brought a new CEO in, which is obviously not usually what you hope is going to happen when you bring someone in to, to run the organization. I, I think, I mean, two things. One is, yes, he's been uh, accused of, of lots of heinous crimes. Um, this is also, and I'm speaking as an Indian, it is a country in which nearly 50% of the MPs in our lower house of parliament are accused of, uh, accused of crimes as well. Um, so it's perhaps not as unusual as you might uh, um, might expect. It's almost the done thing. It's almost mm. the done thing, yeah. You, you're in the majority almost. Um, but I think it does um, bring some quite interesting questions to light. There's been a ton of innovation in in the kind of lending space in, in India in the last couple of years, both from the big tech guys, so Amazon, um, Xiaomi, um, Google, as well, have partnered as well, uh, but also local players too. So, Cashy, I think in particular has been quite an interesting one, and, and lots of P two P stuff as well. Um, and I hope that you know, as much as this is a really shocking story, it doesn't detract from the fact that there is a ton of quite exciting stuff going on, and that you don't get that that sort of tarnishing of of, of everything with the same brush. To, the, to
1: that point, um, whilst I'm not surprised by what happened with Yes Bank, because as you say, like a Netflix series coming soon. <laughs> um, what what? I hadn't foreseen, um, perhaps because I haven't been following the story closely enough, was that when it went down, it would take down all these fintechs with it because it's basically a large infrastructure provider. Um, and they, you know, it, it kind of made sense. Basically, basically what happened was they turned off all Yes Bank systems, and that included all its APIs, which meant that everybody that was using um, the, uh, is, oh God, UPI, what does it stand for? Uh, I'll, I'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, UPI, but just uh, basically, um, Universal ID system um, that you use to attach to payments. Uh, basically, those APIs are switched off. And so lots of these fintechs were like, oh, well, we, all of a sudden, we can't do what we're supposed to do. Um, there's a couple of things in that. One is that um, a lot of the fintechs didn't even know that yes Bank was involved in that processing because it was hidden within another third party that built on top of them. So when it went down, most fintechs that took a while to, to work it out. Um, and the other thing is that while some of the larger fintechs, um, I looked one up, that switched in 24 hours to... ICI yeah, see, I C I C I. Um, Switching twenty four hours, it it was able to do so because it was very large. It had a lot of money, a lot of funding, it could move very quickly. Um, what concerns me is the smaller fintechs who may not have been able to find a solution. Um, and to exactly to your point that if these infrastructure players go down. they'll probably build it back up again, they won't let the bank go bust, they'll find a plan and it looks like loads of other banks are basically going to buy shares in it. But what about all those fintechs who were kind of left on the side and what do we do to protect those fintechs when they're relying on infrastructure from the big guys? Uh,
0: uh, Yeah, and and, and, you know, so uh, analysts are sort of saying that it's too big to fail um, they're expecting regulators to move quickly to prevent that situation getting worse
3: I, I think this is a live story actually i think they've actually made the investment today so just to be clear state bank of india is not the state bank of, of india so it's got it's majority owned by the government <laughs> well but, that's not at all confusing no well, exactly it's majority owned by the government i think it's about 60 65% yeah, it's um, the state largest owned. yeah the largest
0: state owned bank. well w- in, a, in a in a country where i think most of the banks used to be state owned yeah.
3: and and in fact the laws on foreign direct investment are quite strict. So it's hard for people to uh, to, to kind of come in and, and do that from the outside. Um, I think they made the investment today. The FT was talking about it being uh, 1.3 billion US um, a few days ago. I think the ticket size was about a quarter of that, if I've yeah. read the story right. So I'm sure um, as Val said, there are going to be a ton of questions being asked about corporate governance. And I'm mm-hmm. sure there's going to be some kind of a lock-in period as well to make sure that uh, things things turn around in the next three to five years. But as you say, Sarah, the, the main thing is let's hope that, uh, that it doesn't drag a whole bunch of other things down with it. And there are, I mean, look, there are lots of things going on in India right now mm. in general uh, with, you know, with the geopolitical situation, mm. with what's going on in Kashmir and, mm. all, and all the rest of it. I think um, I think it would be a hopeful and optimistic interpretation to think that fixing this particular thing is, is top of the list of things that mm. Narendra Modi is waking up in the morning
1: and, <laughs> and wanting to do. Very fair point. The, he probably has a, an awful lot else on his plate right now.
0: And, and, and I think a lot of the, the questions that these guys are going to have to answer moving forward do speak to governance and ops and all of that sort of stuff. It seems they also just have some systemic issues around like credit decisioning that it seems mm. the proportion of bad loans in their loan book was um, disproportionately high. That was then underreported. So I think this was an accident waiting to happen. I think, Sarah, you summed up quite nicely the impact on the other fintechs. The one thing that I'm keen that we don't understate, obviously, then is the impact on the consumer. Um, and, and And I think we actually talked a little bit about the impact on consumer... Confidence in these types of providers moving forward. The fact that their um, online and mobile banking just went down. The fact that there was no information forthcoming from um, the banks themselves to the actual the actual customers. Customers talked about turning up at eight am. Uh, to withdraw money, even within the limit that had been set at $630, getting there at 8 a.m. And, and and not having any sort of communication or anything like that until 3 p.m. and still just being kind of in, in a queue, just waiting to... That's, that's going to affect consumer confidence. This
3: is also a country where... There was a huge demonetisation exercise mm, yeah. not that long ago, and also where uh, the government has turned off the internet in large parts of the country in response to civil unrest. So, again, not not a lot of this stuff uh, surprises me.
1: It's um, just to your point as well. Just um, I believe I'm right in saying that a lot of uh, the population of, of India, the first sort of access to banking systems they've got is through is through digital services. You know, it's, it's one of those countries where um, the the digital revolution has had a huge impact on giving people access to financial services. And I really, really hope and maybe. This is naive of me because I don't understand the bigger picture at all. But this will not prevent that continued growth and that continued um, attempts by co- uh, by co- companies to actually continue ex- uh, extending that accessibility to people who, who previously have no other access, particularly, as you say, in the wake of demonetization. If you haven't got cash and you haven't got, you know, a digital yeah. bank, what have you got?
0: Yeah, and that that human impact, I think, is 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 where we should sort of move us on. Uh, so our and finally story this week comes from Sky News and concerns Starling becoming the official bank sponsor to Team GB for the the Tokyo Olympics. So. Um, the challenger will serve as the British Olympic Association's official banking partner. Starling already employs a former Team GB archer as an executive, which is just kind of cool, and plans to provide each competitor with an account and a £100 credit. So, um uh, Bowden said, we feel extremely privileged to be the official bank of Team GB, and uh, we'll be sharing our excitement with our customers in a number of creative ways over the next few months so um, what do you guys think is this something that's sort of mutually beneficial does it make sense are we still having an Olympics <laughs>
1: exactly my question was that um, well I, I have
2: no aversion to it but my I biggest was question I really is, is hoping
0: we weren't going to have to talk about coronavirus <laughs> yeah. again I thought we could just no, take the story okay, at face value so
2: I think you know look uh, this is if, if it does go ahead this will be uh, I think the first time that we'll have uh, more women on Team GB than men so um, that's quite exciting, So I think it's going to be 54% of the team will be uh, women. So, you know, probably quite fitting that a bank like uh, that's like Starling, which is uh, obviously very much been at the forefront of this, and it's obviously run by um, a female founder. Um, so there's a kind of good synergy and alignment there. And I mean, look, they, they how much money did they get from the RBS Remedies Package? $100 million, was it? So they have to use that money to incentivize switching and improve their products and services. So I don't know about what they're doing about, you know, improvements on products and services. I'm sure there's lots going on on the back but in terms of what we can see, tube ads, TV ads, this, uh, you know, incentivized switching. We're putting hundred pounds credit in everyone's, everyone's account. So uh, that's clearly a way that they can deploy some of this capital. I mean, we said... Um at Oak North, you know, if we were fortunate to win any of the any of the the grants, you know what would we even do with like ten million pounds? i mean we've we've never had a budget that's even you know ten uh, percent of that. so to yeah. suddenly uh, you know to suddenly have ten million to play with, um you know you can you can do quite a lot.
0: and I, I think it's fair probably to suggest that the the banks and the financial institutions that did win are kind of scratching their heads and asking mm. themselves the same question. Yeah, I mean, look seriously. Go back to your question.
3: The Olympics is a marquee property. Anyone would uh, would be pleased to be associated with it. It's one of the rare things that we do as a country where everybody gets behind it and I think there are very few people who don't have a positive overall view of uh, lots of British people going out and and achieving great things on a global stage. Um, So clearly yes it's a fantastic opportunity for Starling to get themselves into that uh, space. Um, You know still I think awareness of of what challenger banks can do is is not that high outside of some parts of the population. Um, We're probably not yet in the stage where um, you know the HSBC global airport or, you know, when you arrive in the mm. in, in the plane type level of awareness, um, so you know, I think it makes a ton of sense. Um, not hundred percent sure why the the British Olympi- Olympic Association would choose them versus anyone else. Um, maybe they also want to disrupt the financial system in in addition to winning loads of medals in cycling. But
0: I don't know. Uh, we didn't do too well on the the cycling in the World Championships. It was one of our worst. I say our, one of your. <laughs> I
1: mean, mate. <laughs> I
0: know. <laughs> Honestly, really. Um, so we think this is really an awareness play from from Starling. So how far do we think this is going to go, or is it really going to move the needle in terms of like, I guess, normalising um, fintechs and and sort of challenges to the sort of Gen Pop?
1: I'm I'm just sitting here and I'm trying to think of the sports teams that I follow and trying to think who their sponsors are and trying to think through like the brands on the shirts and. I'm struggling a bit to be but honest. With things, you. They, don't,
2: they don't really sponsor necessarily. I mean, you've got Standard Chartered, which I think supports at Liverpool.
0: Liverpool, yeah. And the, then
2: you've got the Barclays Premier League, or um, is that still the Barclays Premier League?
0: It is, I think.
2: Yeah. Uh, so they kind, of, you know, Barclays has enough money to sponsor the entire league, not just a team. And you used um, to be able
0: in—I don't know if they still do—but in the lobby in Canary Wharf, they had the um, the Premier League trophy, which, for a bit of a football nerd like me, oh, right. and so a fintech it, nerd like me, was quite a, 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 a so, nice marriage.
1: So Visa and Moscow do a lot. They they do a huge do. amount actually. Mastercard um, does an awful lot with the rugby. Visa does an awful lot with football, particularly women's football. Um, Admiral used to sponsor the Welsh national rugby team. But outside of financial brands that I would spot and I would know because I work in this industry, I, 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 I genuinely don't. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. But I'm just wondering. I'm wondering how much impact it would have because when you're looking at a shirt. Do you know what you I mean? know, but,
0: but so one one I suppose trend that you can point to over the last couple of years, and this has been sort of mandated. But at least we're moving towards a styling where it's about like feel good about money, and we'll help you manage your finances in terms of a message to the public and away from, for example, Wonga sponsoring Newcastle United or um, you know, I mean, it's it's that sort of thing. So yeah, at least I we're moving towards a more fair, positive it's, message. It's, you know, it makes fair, you, right? the, you feel like there's a degree of
2: credibility and stability to a brand that can can put its its brand towards something as big as, uh, you know, the Olympics in the same way that you'd have with the association with Barclays and Premier League. Actually, funnily enough, so Now Pensions, which was a, a Danish um, auto-enrollment uh, pension provider launched in the UK several years ago uh, In to sort of come in with when auto-enrollment came into effect. And they sponsored the women's GB hockey team and then they went on to actually win at the uh, the the last Olympics um, in in 2016. So I think it was last last Olympics that they won. So um, and what that did, I mean, I you know I don't know how much that did in terms of bringing new customers to our pensions, but it certainly then was great for sort of the just general brand awareness and demonstrating to the market that you're a credible and stable business. Uh, because in order to sponsor something as big as that, you'd probably need quite a bit of cash in the bank.
0: Yeah. So. Um-
2: I was going
1: to say, so you can cut this out if I'm wrong, but doesn't Oak North sponsor a hockey team?
2: No, we sponsor youth hockey teams. Youth so we sponsor a lot of. Teams. We actually sponsor a lot of youth sports teams. So okay. in, in different communities around the UK, um, and that's everything we've done: hockey, rugby, cricket, uh, football teams. So yeah, um, that's kind of part of our work with trying to yeah get get out into different local communities. So I was just going to say that you have experience you're talking on this because you've actually seen it work and seen it in
1: action.
0: I think it's just a relief that they have a banking partner because it was Lloyd's in 2012 and they didn't have one in 2016. So I don't even know like how it went ahead. Um, okay, I'm going to move us on. That is the end of this week's show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Um, where can people find out more about you guys? We'll start with you, Val. Uh,
2: so you can find me on Twitter, Val Christensen or LinkedIn. And if you want to find out more about Oak North, it's w.oaknorth.com.
3: Awesome. How about you, Pranav? Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn and then uh, gocardless.com or at gocardless on Twitter. It's a beautiful thing. Sarah?
1: You can find me on almost any podcast we release in the next week, I think. Um, But outside of that, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Kaczynski.
0: Amazing. And you can find me on Twitter at RossGallagher07. So thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast And please don't forget to leave us a review. It really does help, and we really, really do love reading. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech and who isn't already listening to Fintech Insider, please do pass the pod along and tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, it's always welcome. Find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.